Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is Behind the Scenes. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Today my guests are Jim Dwyer, professor of law at the College of William and Mary, and Kathy Hellyer, Colonial Williamsburg historian. They both consulted on the upcoming electronic field trip, Rights of Youth, which premieres this Thursday, March 11th, on history.org slash trips and on local public broadcasting stations. Thank you both for being here. My pleasure. Well, I'd like to begin our conversation where the electronic field trip leaves off, and that's on the thought which is, today we think children should be protected and treated differently than adults in the eyes of the law and that's a that's a departure from where we began in this colony in the eighteenth century kathy maybe you can start and tell us a little bit in a general way about how children were viewed in the eyes of the law in the eighteenth century how they were treated well they really weren't viewed as adults i mean i think we need to establish that first of all um, there there was a much younger age of consent, I think, when when a child was perceived to be able to be prosecuted for felony. Um, But even that was treated rather inconsistently. Um, Judges or justices tended to um, take a look at the circumstances of the case when making these kinds of decisions. For example, a... um, a book that was written for 18th century justices of the peace in the 1730s in Virginia said you really can't prosecute a child under 14 for a felony. On the other hand, if they're eight years old or over and they um, commit homicide, if it's clear that they understand what they've done, that it was wrong, that they... um, you know, for example, try to hide the body or something like that, then they can be prosecuted for murder. There's not a single rule for, even though the law says one thing, they, they might or might not follow that, depending on the circumstances of the case. And children of different ages were seen as having different abilities under the law. Jim, could you contrast that with how we see children in the 21st century in the court today? Sure. I assume that uh, even in the 18th century, if a child committed a crime, was not going to be prosecuted, someone would still try to rehabilitate the child in some way. And Today we've just formalized that. We have a separate court system for juveniles who commit crimes. And so any person who is under 18 who commits a crime will first uh, typically go to the juvenile court, um, and only if it's a very serious felony will the child be uh, transferred to an adult court and prosecuted as an adult. In the juvenile court, which has uh, civil proceedings rather than criminal, uh, there will still be someone in a prosecution role accusing the the juvenile and a defense attorney defending the juvenile, and the court will have to figure out, did the person actually commit the crime? But if uh, they are found to have done so, the uh, remedy is rehabilitation rather than punishment, per se. Although that to the juvenile can look very much like punishment because it can entail going to a detention facility. Um, but it is, in theory, a different kind of proceeding uh, on the assumption that a child is still susceptible to being reformed and uh, turning out to be a good citizen, even if they commit crimes. Kathy alluded to the age of discretion, the age at which a child is considered to be aware of the, the implications of their actions. How do we look at that in, in the present day? Is there a certain age at which we consider a child an adult? Is there a, is there a gray area? There's a variety. 
Uh, we have different ages for all different kinds of decisions uh, and for being responsible for one's actions. So, uh, for example, the drinking age now, of course, as everyone knows, is 21, uh, whereas voting is 18. Um, and there are different ages specified for when you can work and what kinds of places uh, and uh, at what age uh, you can be transferred to an adult court if you've committed crimes. Not everyone who commits a serious crime can be transferred to an adult court. You have to be over a certain age, which is going to vary by state. So there isn't a single age of adulthood. We tend to think of it as 18, um, but obviously things like uh, drinking wait uh, for a few years even beyond that. So is someone really an adult if they're not permitted to drink alcohol? Um, it's not such a clear cutoff time. Kathy, Jim talked about um, a punishment would be a time spent in a detention center. What were the punishments like for children found guilty of crimes in the 18th century? Well, pretty much the same as adults. Um, whipping, um, being put in the stocks or pillory, and if it's severe enough, um, death by hanging. So much more severe punishments than today. Yes. We've talked a bit about how the law applies to children in terms of, of their breaking it, but there are also protections that children are entitled to under the law, and I'd like to look at some of those in the light of the 18th century and contrast that with today. Kathy, can you start by telling me about a child's right to an education? It might not seem like such a privilege to children today for an <laughs> education, but in those days it might not have been assured as it is today. Well, I mean... Most children received a pretty rudimentary education, reading, writing, and basic arithmetic. Um, if you couldn't do those things, you really had no skills whatsoever. Um, and the community felt that you would become, as they said, a charge upon the parish, meaning that the, the parish would have to support you because you had no way of supporting yourself with no skills. So the idea was that um, parents should be providing some type of rudimentary education for their children, or they, the parish could sort of take over and bind them out as either apprentices or servants. How do we see that um, playing out today in the 21st century? Is there the same idea carrying through time? Today we have a widespread public school system, of course, uh, which is a 20th century phenomenon for the most part. Um, and every state has a statute uh, that's says children have a right to an education. Um, at the same time, uh, states permit parents to opt out of the public school system, of course, uh, and even to homeschool. Um, and whether the right of a child to an education today is greater or lesser than it was in the 18th century might depend on what, how, to what extent the state supervises uh, what parents do if they do not choose the state's own schools. And what about the right to safety? How do we look at a child um, whose parents might not be capable of providing for them? Well, I think it's the same thing in the 18th century. If they're seriously unable to provide uh, for their children, the children may be taken by the parish and um, then, as they said, bound out as servants or as apprentices. And if, uh, if they became an apprentice, they would have the means of making a livelihood through... Um, through their adult years. So that was actually quite um, a good thing for the child. Um, I think sometimes we think that um, because children today are accustomed to spending their childhood with their parents, we sometimes think that separating a child for an apprenticeship or something like that might be actually cruel. But it was, um, it was pretty commonplace to take a child and have someone 
else teach them. For instance, you might go to a school run by a minister and not live at home, or you might go to the College of William and Mary and not live at home, or you might be schooled in England. Um, we tend to look at separation from parents in um, a more negative light than they did then. So some of what might seem harsh to our modern eyes is actually just a difference in culture between their century and ours. Yes. Jim, I know that in the present day, uh, for adults, there is a greater population of African-American individuals in the justice system. Is that true for youth today? It is true. Uh, it's true at every stage of uh, state reaction to misbehavior. So if you look at statistics for children who, are, um, who have been suspended or expelled from school, there is a very disproportionate impact on uh, African-American children and other non-white children. Um, and so, too, in the juvenile justice system, you find uh, that white children are underrepresented, or that uh, minority-race children are overrepresented. And there is concern that this might not reflect necessarily a higher rate of misbehavior or not a higher rate to that extent, that there is some discrimination in how uh, rules are applied, but uh, those are the facts that the population tends to be uh, mostly of minority race. And Kathy, what can we observe about the experience of African American youth in the 18th century? Well, in terms of um, whether or not there were more of them in the justice system, that's something that we really can't answer because most cases involving um, slaves were tried in the county courts, and Virginia's county court records, many of them are missing. So we really, um, we really can't make a good assessment of how many African-American slave children were involved in the justice system. It's not possible to do that. But in terms of, for example, protections, a slave child didn't have the kind of protection against abuse that a white child would have. Um, the master could pretty much do any sort of correction um, with, without being stopped in any way, really. And in the courtroom, uh, an African-American would not be able to testify? Could not testify against a white person. How do you feel that the legacy of the 18th century views of protections for children is carried through in the 21st century in the present day or has maybe been discarded? Ironically, there might be less community intrusion into family life to protect children. Today, there might be more resistance to doing so. Kathy mentioned that removing a child from a home is uh, deemed in su such a negative light today relative to uh, the 18th century. So today we have formal institutions. We have child protection agencies uh, to guard against child abuse. Um, but at the same time, there is a kind of anti-statist attitude that might not have existed to the same degree in the 18th century and strong protections for parents' rights, uh, procedural rights, as well as substantive rights to raise their children as they see fit, including some corporal punishment. Uh, whereas in the 18th century, that doctrine did not exist, and uh, I think community leaders felt freer to intervene in family life and um, protect children. Kathy, what would you reflect on as far as our legacy of law that we inherited from coming from English common law, interpreted into the colonies, and then 400 years hence? I think the idea of childhood as a separate stage of life from adulthood, 
that they did recognize that there were different stages of development, that children were capable of making better decisions as they got older. And I think that has carried through. We sometimes make the mistaken notion that they really felt that children were little adults, but they really didn't. Um, and the law recognized that children grew in wisdom as, as they got older. Thank you both for being here. Thank My you. pleasure. I hope that uh, all of our listeners will tune in this Thursday for the premiere of the electronic field trip, The Rights of Youth. Thank you. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org slash podcasts. Check back often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.